hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. I'm looking at a photograph of a group of people in coats and caps on a roof deck. They're in New York, set against a patterned backdrop of buildings on a casual fall afternoon. And we can tell from their coats and caps that this is a different New York, that it's the New York of the middle of the 20th century, where people in these kinds of coats and caps could have a roof deck. These people are artists, artists you would only recognize by their names, text on a card mounted next to a painting on a wall that is beautifully hung and illuminated with a perfect artificial light source. Agnes Martin, Ellsworth Kelly, Robert Indiana, James Rosenquist. But here they are, human beings, sucking down cigarettes, sitting on a pile of scrap, and encouraging one of their kids to smile for the camera. MoMA and the Whitney and the Met, where their names would ultimately live, are far, far uptown. But this is their New York. This is Coenty's Slip. Coenty's Slip was a dead-end street in Lower Manhattan. It was also home to an itinerant community of scrappy mid-century artists, many of whom, as author Prudence Pfeiffer explores in her book, The Slip, The New York City Street That Changed American Art Forever, evolved together alongside one another because they hung out together. They were friends. They helped one another. They experimented together and helped carry scrap for each other. And maybe it was the very fact of the community that we know their names today. Yet when we see those names mounted on a museum wall, we forget that they were ever young and poor and grimy and experimenting and human. Maybe that's why this photograph is on the book's cover. Because it's art historians like Prudence Pfeiffer who rebuild the context around them so that we do remember that they were young and poor and grimy and experimenting and human. After the break, my conversation with Prudence Pfeiffer. I'm an elementary school art teacher, so I love being able to learn myself and pass that information on to my students. I especially love that this podcast is not snooty. <laughs> and at first I felt like a bit silly just seeing if I could have an emotional connection on my lunch break because a podcast told me I could. I had one of the most moving art going experiences in my life while listening to the episode about Rothko. Whether this podcast has taught me like to get any artist, it's taught me to trust my instincts. Trust what I see in a piece of art and what it makes me feel. When I go to a museum now, I feel possibility. Hey, it's Tamar. And I just wanted to take a moment and thank my Patreon supporters, a few of whom you just heard from, for sustaining this and every episode of The Lonely Palette. I couldn't be more grateful for their support, and I hope that you'll consider joining them. For more information, great juju, and even greater swag, 
head on over to patreon.com slash lonelypalette. And thank you so much. So Prudence Pfeiffer, welcome. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. We're here to talk about your recently released book, The Slip, The New York City Street That Changed American Art Forever. Um, And I just have to say at the outset, your book is beautifully written. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And I I appreciate the New York Times referred to it as very tenderly researched. And my first impulse is to say, "Mm, would you say that about a male writer? But I, I think that it's true. You know, there is a tenderness to the way that you're bringing these these artists together, these characters, but these really human beings. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Will you introduce yourself? Sure. And thank you so much for having me on your wonderful podcast. Uh, yeah, my name is Prudence Pfeiffer. And um, as you just mentioned, I just wrote this book. And it was seven years in the making, so it feels really great to finally have it out in the world. I am director of content at uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which means um, I run a very small team or I lead a very small team that's responsible for all of the videos that MoMA puts out. We do a lot of the um, content and the storytelling that happens across our website. And um, we collaborate with other teams to work on audio and podcasts as well. So obviously, you know, the, the idea of telling Telling accessible and human stories around art is something that is very near and dear to my heart across Mm -hmm. everything I do. Will you start by just describing this eponymous slip? Yes. Well, first of all, maybe I'll just mention what a slip is because I didn't really (laughs) fully know what it was when I started working on this project. Um, And it it serves as as a kind of metaphor in the book in a certain way. So, you know, a slip is a place where boats or ships can come um, and more. It's, it's sort of a safe harbor in a way, um, but it's not a kind of permanent place for them. Um, so this became an idea that I really tried to carry throughout the book in terms of thinking about this group of artists who end up living at uh, the slip in New York and for a very brief period of time. So for all of them are there for less than 10 years, but all told, the group was there from 1956 to 1967. Uh, so a very lively time in New York City, for sure. And the particular slip that they're living at is called Coenties Slip. So at one time, there were actually 12 of these slips that ran along the southern, very southern tip of Manhattan, kind of from Battery, the Battery Park to the Brooklyn Bridge. And Coenties Slip is was the kind of deepest of them in terms of waterways and the central marketplace and hub at one point, um, because, you know, as it kind of makes sense, when you have ships and boats coming in, unloading goods, so then that kind of creates these little microcosms of industry. And, but by the time uh, this group of artists was looking for a cheap and affordable places to live and work, having all just moved to New York City, it was already a very kind of obscure and unknown place that was kind of in the twilight of its uh, former life as a sort of center of maritime industry. And that's in a way why they were able to to live there and, um, and to start working there. 
And name some of these artists, because there are some that most people have heard of and some that only art historians have heard of and some people that actually no one knows who they are. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, in my mind, fascinating mix of, um, of people. And exactly as you say, people who kind of went on to become very famous within the art world and, and maybe even broader culture and, you know, others less so. But they all were coming from outside of New York City moved here to the slip. So the first the first sort of artist to to move there um, from this kind of central group that I'm looking at in the book was Ellsworth Kelly. And he was um, encouraged to move there by a really fascinating artist, Fred Mitchell, who was running an art school on the slip, on Quentin Slip, and also sort of working as an art director at the Siemens Church Institute, which was this amazing hotel for sailors at the very end of Coenties Slip. So it's kind of like a three blocks um, that sort of dead ended right by the East River. And there was this really amazing hotel for sailors that were on shore leave. And it plays an interesting part and in, role in the book just because um, it offered hot showers and they had a hot cafeteria. Um, it had a really interesting library and museum. So it was a, it was a, a really important space actually for the artists on their street. At, kind of resource. But so Ellsworth Kelly is there and he meets Robert Indiana, who was then, you know, going by his born name, Robert Clark at an art supply store. Uh, Indiana was working there and um, Kelly was um, looking at a Matisse postcard and they struck up a conversation. And Indiana was also looking for a new place to live and work. And so Kelly invites him down. Then Jack Youngerman, who Kelly had uh, met in France when they both were at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts and kind of just learning and, and soaking up the, the culture of modernism and um, going to all of these artist studios. Uh, he invites younger men who, had, who was just back from Paris himself to move there with his wife. Um, so younger men was also an abstract painter like Kelly. Indiana was still sort of figuring out what he was doing. He was writing some poetry. He was doing some all different kinds of painting. And uh, Jack Youngerman comes to the slip with his wife, Delphine Serig, an actor. And she, you know, she was a very young actor. She was still, um, you know, going on auditions, again, sort of figuring out what she was going to do. But she would end up starring in this kind of cult beat film called Pull My Daisy that Jack Kerouac wrote and that was directed by Robert Frank and Alfred Leslie and starred Allen Ginsberg and, and oh others. God. So it was kind of this, this central, you know, so it was just this amazing moment that she ends up being a part of. Um, and then very shortly after she leaves the slip to go back to Paris, she stars in this incredible film by Alain René last year at Marienbad, which kind of cements her immediately as this star. And she becomes this you know, very famous uh, film actress star and and amazing activist as well um, later in her life. And uh, Agnes Martin is there. Um, yeah, I was waiting she, for Yes, her. yes. So she, um, in the encouragement of Betty Parsons, you know, comes back to New York after being in New York for school and, and she had been in New Mexico and and she, you know, comes, comes by bus back to New York and settles at the slip. Um, Lenore Tawney, really uh, important fiber artist, textile artist comes as well um, in the same year. And then just a little bit later, James Rosenquist joins the crew. 
And there are a few other um, artists who are there sort of momentarily or more briefly, including Anne Wilson, who, um, in addition to you know, being a really interesting artist in her own right, was also a really important writer and advocate for uh, Martin and Tawny's work. And Charles Hinman. And you know, there's lots of intersections of others. But I think those are kind of the, the main the main figures of the story. And I should say also that when Jack Youngerman and Delphine Sarig move to the slip, they have their six-month-old son, Duncan, with them. And so he becomes sort of the de facto child of, of the slip artist, too. Um, and very shortly after moving there, they also adopt a stray dog, which they name Orange or Lorange, who appears in a lot of the really incredible photographs that we have, both from the great photographer Hans Namath, who's a great chronicler of artists and, and just a, a great photographer in his own right, and who did a photo shoot on the slip, um, but also just from the the wonderful sort of ephemeral snapshots that you know we have from the artists and their families. Yeah, there's that wonderful photo that you used on the cover of the book where it's just these artists who, you know, largely we know who they are, just hanging, you know? Yeah, it's always so fun to look at images and to kind of to think about all the different sort of stories that you can read into them. And I, I love, I love that the photo that you're referring to, which is probably the best known. I mean, in a way, people I think know that photo more than they know what Coenti slip is or even what this moment was about. Um, because that has that, you know, photo just has this real resonance because it's most of the artists of the slip. Rosenquist was not there yet, and Tawny, for whatever reason, um, was not a part of that photo shoot, but it's you know, the other um, five are up on the roof uh, with with Orange, the dog, and um, up on the roof of one of these buildings, these 19th century maritime buildings, and you see all of the kind of skyscrapers of the city behind them. They're framed by the kind of the, the world and the place in which they were living, um, but also somehow a bit sort of up above the bustle and hecticness of, of the city. And one of the things that really fascinated me when I first started researching this book was just how much the people who lived there really talked about it being apart from Manhattan, like separate from Manhattan. And of course it wasn't. And you know, as I mentioned it at one point, even um, in the late um, 18th and 19th centuries, it was really the center of, of and, and, you know, and, and very bustling um, part of the city. But by, you know, by the time the artists were there, it was this very, that neighborhood was incredibly quiet after 5 p.m. Um, when, you know, the Wall Streeters went home and um, before, you know, people were uh, waking up early for the Fulton Fish Market. And it was, you know, it was a place that, that they, where they would joke that they would kind of like leave Manhattan to go home. And that felt very important that they could somehow be a part of this city and this very important cultural place, but also have some distance from it to just figure out what the heck they were going to be doing and making and mm-hmm. uh, and and kind of thinking about and and that's I think that's you know that's something that's so important for being able to move forward at all with doing something creative. But it's it's hard. It's not really you know it's hard to sort of find that articulated anywhere in the historical record because it's not something that people mm-hmm. really talk about, right? I mean, it's not a grand narrative. It's not a um, it's not a breakthrough. It's not a big thing. It's actually like a pretty modest um, 
way of just kind of trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. So I wanted to to dive into that exact idea in terms of the way that art history has kind of shaped the storytelling about artists and how we're starting to kind of debunk that. So I wanted to divide what you were talking about into two larger themes that I, I hope we can hit on. Um, one is place and the other is these interrelationships of the scene itself. And let's just start with place. Yeah. Um, you have this wonderful line in your introduction where you say, quote, place is an undervalued determinant in creative output. To think of an artistic group in terms of place is to write a different history of art, one that can be more inclusive, open to serendipitous interaction. To focus on place allows us to bring in the small details around the conditions and materials of working, too often lost to the archive, I love that, to help uncover why anything gets made at all. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that that was such a great way of casting your net. So then let me ask, you know, in focusing on the Coenties slip, how are you telling a different history of art? Yeah, I mean, I think that, and I thank you for, for pulling out that sentence. I mean, I think that I... I really, I wanted to see, you know, what would happen if instead of just talking about each artist in terms of the, you know, the development of what they were making first, and then they did this, and they were, you know, talking to this artist, and then that led to this. And it's not to say that that isn't a part of the story, and it certainly is. And I guess we'll talk about the sort of part B that we'll, we'll talk about in terms of, you know, the incredible importance and influence of the people around you in a place that you're you know, exposed to. But I also, yeah, it just struck me that so much of one's environment gets kind of lost to the archive, but is so profoundly crucial to how, yeah, how you do anything at all, you know, as I, as I write. And I think particularly for the artist living on Quentin Slip, it was such a unique and strange geographic site, you know, having been sort of, you know, the contingency of it, that it was, you know, not quite land, but not quite sea. I mean, it was filled, the slip was filled in the late 19th century. So, you know, when the artists were there, it was a street, it was not, you know, a waterway, but they all had very close views and easy access to the East River and went out on the, you know, on ferry rides all the time and crossed, you know, they all sort of talked about, in you know various journals and books they they wrote and letters they wrote home and um, they all talk about interviews they all talk about walking a lot you know like kind of going out and walking around the neighborhood and and of course they were also scavenging in their neighborhood because their their time at the slip um, also marks a time of incredible accelerated development in New York City. Um, I think, you know, 1957, there was more construction in the city than ever before. And then that record was broken in 1958. And a huge percentage of that development was happening in downtown New York, in part because it was a very you know lucrative place for real estate development, because there were so many low rise 19th and earlier century buildings um, around the maritime trade and these warehouses. And so there was this opportunity to really uh, develop it. And so you just, you know, even as they moved there, 
the artists were very aware of the ephemerality of the place where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it did provide incredible literal material for their work at a time when, you know, Robert Indiana could not afford canvas when he first moved to the slip and you know, he didn't have a gallery. He was really, you know, struggling and he was literally ripping down the particle board walls of his studio workspace and painting on it. And, but he also was going out into the neighborhood and finding these, you know, huge, incredible beams that were a part of these 19th century buildings that were being knocked down. And before that, you know, before they were columns in the buildings, they were masts on ships. And so it's like the materials themselves have this wonderful, long life of an object that I always, you know, find really fascinating too. And, um, and wheels and stencils and so there were all these kind of, you know, papers, the one of the studio, his, the second studio where Indiana was, ended up having to move because his first uh, loft building was knocked down very, very early on from when he moved to the slip. And so he moves uh, next door. He started at 31 and then he moves to 25 Coenty slip. And that had been um, this Marine Works supply store that also was a printer. And there were a lot of paper sort of left behind. So he does a huge drawing with a lot of these sheets of paper. So it's kind of, you know, making, using the materials at hand, which of course absolutely affects what you're doing and what you're thinking about and, and literally what something looks like or what, what something turns out to be. And then there's the less tangible aspects of a place and how it sort of gets under your skin um, or under your, uh, your, under your fingernails as it were. Mm-hmm. as you're as you're working there and I think you know that also really interested me and as an art historian nerd and I've been doing this for a long time but I I was so excited to actually be able to start you know to go beyond the maybe like the usual archives that I was used to or the usual books or references and to be you know, learning about the canal boating community that lived at Mm -hmm. Coenty Slip in the, you know, 19th and 20th century and what their relationship to that place, the strange parallels actually that I found to the artists in a way, because they also, when they were, when, you know, when the Times was kind of profiling this community, it was like, well, they're not really of the city, but they're in the city, you know, they're, they're just here for a certain period of time. And, and so there was, you know, there was just a way that, and then the same with the sailors who lived at the end of the street. So there were all of these sort of communities that ended up for various reasons, you know, living on the slip for large periods of time that had, in my mind, a kind of beautiful connection to that place. Um, and then to the, you know, the artists who were there as well in the 50s and 60s and how they were maybe thinking about their, their place there and their role, um, you know, not just in, in the city, but in, in the kind of fabric of this idea of work and labor and how, you know, and what that meant when, you know, on this one street that where you can kind of trace a, a huge kind of progression of different kinds of industry and different kinds of, of labor in terms of, you know, the creation of the street itself and um, just its long life. And, and just, just in, in, as a aside, but I, I loved this, this detail. Um, I, my husband was actually talking to a friend of his about this book and the friend said, oh my gosh, I, I actually know Coendi Slip. I know this place. And you, 
that's not something you hear a lot, um, <laughs> even within you know the art history world. And he said, you know, it was a really big place for skaters in the 80s and 90s um, for skateboarders because it was, you know, at that time there there the Jeanette Park, which was at the end of the um, slip when the artists were there, had been raised, and there was then a Vietnam War memorial was put in that was a lot of concrete and. Again, because it was this really, you know, more desolate place that was not, you know, kind of in the corner of the city. It was this amazing kind of skate park. For... So I just love this idea of another kind of itinerant community, you know, using using mm -hmm. that space in a different way. You know, a story that I that I had not heard before. Um, but obviously, just yeah, the many the many lives of a of a singular place. Um, and then you know, it also to to think about place in that way leads led me at least to be you know to kind of be be looking for other kinds of stories and and ways of of thinking about how you sort of build build a story of what of how one even starts to make something because i think you know for me sometimes when you're studying art or reading about art history everything feels very and then all of a sudden, you know, this incredible painting appeared. And then mm -hmm. this other painting came that was a reaction to this painting. And I, oh my you, God. you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm reading that right now. I'm, I'm putting an episode together for a Renaissance, but, you know, a very famous Renaissance yeah. painting. And I can't get over, I mean, granted, the first thing I do is pull out a textbook because it just helps yeah. center me in terms of like what people expect the episode to be about. But uh, yeah, I mean, every, it, it's useless. It's just useless, this textbook. It's just one painting leads to the next, leads to the next. And it's just a description of that painting. And it does not add up to context. It just doesn't. Yeah. And I think there, you know, there's so much that we, there's so much great art history and there's so much that we do, you know, we do need to, I mean, part of what I, I was also interested in is that these artists were, they were responding to each other. You know, it wasn't just like, okay, we're, we're looking at, we're looking at place and, you know, where this is about where we are and that's all that interests us. Of course, not at all. And they were responding to this kind of um, moment that was so pregnant in New York at the time, you know, just as abstract expressionism had kind of, you know, seized the world's attention in a way, but also was not the right fit for these art particular artists. And so there was so much, they were going and looking at so much art and they were thinking about it and they were, you know, responding, but there's also a way in which, and I think maybe also for me, here's where even, you know, as you sit down and try to like research and, and write a book, you think, well, this is, this is hard work and there's so much there's so much of this that's about you know nothing really happens <laughs> you know like you want you want a lot to happen and you have this very limited time you know for me writing this book it was a real challenge i had a you know pretty demanding full-time job and in the course of writing the book i you know ended up having three kids as well so okay we'll come back to that time yeah time became this thing that was this very you know precious and and almost fleeting thing that you get a little bit obsessed over but I loved Rosenquist has these great descriptions in his autobiography that I bring into the book around you know kind of just walking around you know I think you know he's like he he smoked a joint and just like walked around the neighborhood and but it was just this idea of allowing for time to just figure it out 
and then you know things would come and i think I wanted to somehow build that into the story. And so, you know, there's a lot, especially I felt very moved by um, Delphine Sarek, a a figure who I did not know very well at all before I started working on this book. And, you know, I had the real privilege of speaking for more than three years with Jack Youngerman and it was, you know, and he had amazing stories and, and through, through Jack, I met Duncan, his son, who's also in in that great Namath photograph and he gave me these letters that Delphine had, his mother had written back home to her mother um, and her parents, her mother and father in Beirut and Paris, where she's talking about waiting. You know, she's talking about going to all these auditions and nothing's really happening. And she's a new mom living in this pretty rough and tumble way. You know, it's not a, you know, they, they kind of had to outfit everything. There was no heat. There was no kitchen there. Everything had to be kind of brought in. And, and then suddenly you get a call back and that seems promising. And then no, that, that falls through or suddenly you're in a production and it's, you know, off, 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 off Broadway it's actually in Connecticut. <laughs> it's really inconvenient to get to with your, you know, little family back in Manhattan. And then it gets, you know, canceled after, you know, three shows or whatever. And just the reality of, of this kind of work before a kind of moment when, you know, you do see a serendipitous meeting where she meets the director, you know, Alain René, and, and you do see this moment of this could really turn into... Um, an incredible collaboration, which it which it does. So, yeah, I mean, and and again, it's just the way that I it's it's a it's an approach to history that I find, I guess, most real and and maybe a way to kind of let in a little bit more, you know, humanness to use your word mm-hmm. and and just reality that that to me feels very approachable and relatable, you know, in to all the way that we all are trying. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, what does it mean? I think that was the other thing that was so incredible to me in, in discovering the amazing anomaly of this particular group of artists at this particular time, all living so close to each other, because it really was a moment when they all were working things out and were just starting to have, you know, successes and just starting to, to you know, to become themselves. I mean, for Indiana, literally, you know, choosing a new last name and finding gallerists and having first shows and, you know, getting, having breakthrough moments with a, you know, a show at MoMA or a a museum buying a painting or, you know, this kind of thing. And to be able to kind of capture that just was a really interesting challenge to me because I think oftentimes it's like the, the end thing that, that is what we're, we're reading about and not that kind of middle period, but there's a lot in that, middle period that um, I think, you know, we can, where we can learn about creativity and community and um, yeah, like what it, you know, and, and again, sort of what it means to be in, in this kind of a very particular place at this very particular time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay, then, then, so let's move on to the, the people and the relationships. And I was, <laughs> I found myself when I was going through your book, you must be familiar with the unemployed philosophers guild, you know, it's no, are you? Okay. It's, it's this great website. It, you know, whenever you walk into a museum gift shop and there's a little plush Monet or, you know, the pins and the mugs. And, um, so one thing that they do is they make these little finger puppets and I've collected all the artist ones. I've gotten them as gifts 
And something that's always, you know, always tickles me is to, you know, put on the the Picasso and the Frank Lloyd Wright and kind of imagine the kind of the conversations that they'd have. And it was like, your book is full of that, <laughs> um, you know, where it's like, you just don't think of these artists as real yeah. people. And, and I want to actually come back to that. But uh, just were there any, do you have any kind of particularly fun anecdotes of, mm. you know, one finger puppet talking to the other? <laughs> Um, I mean, there are, as you say, there really are, there really are so, so many moments like that. Um, because Andy Warhol stops. Yes. By, right. I mean, he becomes a character yes, too. No, actually there's sort of a, a, one of the, um, central chapters is around this film that Warhol makes in collaboration with Indiana called Eat, which is, you know, one of his early films from 64. That's really important film. And it is Indiana eating a mushroom. I mean, that's what it is and, <laughs> um, for 39 minutes. And um, it's a it's a really awesome film. And it, it was shot uh, in Indiana's studio at Coenty Slip. And I yeah, in that chapter, I kind of talk about how as straightforward as the film sounds like it is, it has all of these connections from the mushroom reference to, you know, Warhol in Indiana to just all these other things that were happening at the time, um, including the 1964 World's Fair. And that was, you know, a kind of interesting, not even digression is the wrong word, but I never, when I started out doing this project, I never thought I would be reading about Robert Moses and the 1964 World's Fair. And, you know, and I just, I love that the book took me in all of these different places that I wasn't expecting. But yes, I wish, you know, there were many, many moments I wish I really could have been a fly on the wall in terms of mm -hmm. conversations. And that shoot is one of them that would have been great. I mean, there's, Indiana starved himself because he thought that he was going to be sort of doing a this shoot where he just was like eating tons of food and that was going to be the kind of conceit of the film. So he was kind of crushed when Warhol said, and he went out and spent a lot of money that he didn't really have to have, you know, to have all these groceries. And then, you know, Warhol was like, no, I just want you to eat this one mushroom. <laughs> but then after they were done filming, he did take him across the street to the Siemens Church Institute for a nice hot lunch as a thank you. So, um, <laughs> So that was uh, nice. Can you say a little bit more about about why this is such a great film? Like, why is why is Robert Indiana eating a mushroom for thirty nine minutes art? <laughs> well, um, I think it's a great. I mean, it's a great film. It's actually quite beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, if you watch it, it has these very kind of almost oversaturated tones. He's sitting by his window. He's in his rocker. Uh, not a lot happens, which is of course, very typical of many Warhol films. But this is this is less a film that feels like a kind of test of durée, as it were, like test of of you know how how long we will look at an image and sort of question if it even is a, a film anymore or just a photo in terms of not much happening in it. And to me, it's a very loving portrait, actually. It's really almost related to his, the film stills that he made in his factory of people because you really, just the way, there's a way that it's just 
a port just a portrait of someone and the main movement happens you know from the rocking chair going back and forth and then Indiana's cat Parcheesi kind of climbing on his shoulder up on his shoulders and back and you know you see this kind of it's like a rubber plant like right behind him so it somehow captures some of the main aspects of Indiana's personhood or that he was sort of most proud of and that you know other photographs of him in that space, you know, really, he always is with his cats and, and with his plants and that chair um, plays a key role. And actually even like the kind of sweater that he's wearing, he's wear he's wearing in a lot of other photos. So um, yeah, there's a way in which this is very, a very beautiful portrait. And I think it's interesting. Warhol is also like so many Warhol things, I mean, I think he's paying homage to Indiana because Indiana was making paintings, had just started making a series of paintings um, that use the word eat. And food was a very important thing for Indiana. He talks a lot about using the word eat. And, you know, he talks a lot about food in terms of his relationship with his parents and growing up without a lot of food. And um, sort of both of his parents, they're sort of dying words were around food. Hmm. Um, and so he, you know, there, and he, his mother had once, he'd once foraged mushrooms and given it to his mother who made this meal for him. And this was like a very important childhood foundational story for him. So there's all these ways in which, I mean, who knows how much of that Warhol knew, but I think there, there is a certain canniness around, you know, paying homage to the works that, that Indiana was currently making. And in fact, the work that he was making for the World's Fair, um, which was this eat sign that sort of lit up. And so I should say for the World's Fair, um, a group of artists were commissioned by Philip Johnson to make large works for the um, outside of the New York State Pavilion, which was this kind of rounded wall um, structure. And um, three of the artists were artists living on the slip. So Rosenquist at... Kelly and uh, Indiana. And um, so Indiana makes this eat sign, or so it's sort of taking one of his paintings and, and making it into this even more of a kind of graphic sign or demand. But it became actually this whole issue at the fair because it was taken too literally by fairgoers oh, as, no. being a, as being a sign of like, you could come and eat here. So it was actually turned off <laughs> because it was short seen as too confusing. So it was a bit of a, a oh, They must have been so disappointed. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and Warhol has his own um, controversy at the fair, which we don't have to get into here. But so, so I think, you know, there's an homage, but it's also in typical Warholian fashion, a bit of a cannibalization as well, because, you know, he's having, he's having Indiana, you know, eat something which is famously dangerous, you know, that, you know, mushrooms can, of course, be poisonous and many are and it's sometimes really hard to tell the difference between the two and Warhol really deeply admired John Cage who had a sort of side life as being a mushroom expert and forager for restaurants in the city hmm. and um, yeah so there's all you know it, there's a there's so many different ways in which this the lowly mushroom has different <laughs> reference for the time the time period as well yeah and and as you describe all of that, we get such a richer picture of Robert Indiana than anybody would get from seeing the the love sculpture. Mm, and yeah. 
that seems to be really what you're talking about in a much larger way is that to understand these artists as human beings is to have such a, not only a deeper understanding of their art, but a deeper understanding of the ways that we can connect to their art. And I, I find in your work that, you know, it's so clear that you have a very intimate relationship with all of these artists, that by doing this research, it's not holding them at a kind of arm's length, creative genius, you know, bowing in front of their statue, you know, but actually getting to know them as human beings before they became, before their names became bigger than they were. Yeah. And I want to ask you kind of more kind of philosophically, why do we have such a hard time imagining artists as normal people? (laughs) Because it feels like it makes their art so much more difficult to access when we don't realize that they're human beings living through their own historical context, it makes art history as a discipline feel like it exists entirely behind a velvet rope. Yeah. Why do we do this? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's a really great question. And I I think it's also, I mean, you know, what is normal, right? Because in (laughs) many ways it, you know, it, it is, it was definitely a little bit out of the ordinary, what yeah, you know, what they chose, you know, where they chose to live, and and what they sort of put up with to 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 live there. And it's funny, one of the things that Youngerman, that Jack Youngerman, kept saying to me um, when I was interviewing him, and and you know, when he would be showing me pictures of his loft, and I'd be like, oh, it was so beautiful, and he was like, no, 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 don't romanticize it. It was really mm. difficult, you know. It was, it was so, it was really hard work, and. But I think, you know, I, I totally agree that I, I think it is important to, um, well, you know, what, it, what, it, what is art for, right? Like, why, why, do, why do people make art and why do people want to look at it and think about it? And, and if it's not to kind of make these connections between, you know, how we, we can look better at the world or how we can, you know, push our mind to imagine new things or to imagine a mashup of things or to kind of you know, if that isn't the the point of, you know, of things, then why even think about it, right? And, and I think that, you know, you can have an artist like Ellsworth Kelly, who is very intellectual in, in many ways in terms of the kind of approach and how he you know, planned out things and the references that he lifted. But also, I mean, one of the the discoveries for me in, in researching and, and writing this book was there was such a I don't know, I, mean, I don't want to sound too sentimental or something, but there was such a generosity of vision, it seemed to me, in, in how he was thinking about, you know, what one can take from one's environment and and how that can become the material for something really, you know, incredible, even if it seems like several layers removed. And also how one can quietly, you know, be really generous to a group of artists in terms of inviting your gallerist to go visit their studio too, or, you know, and this, this happens all the time, but I think it isn't, you know, often commented on. <laughs> um, and, and I, and to your point, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure why, you know, except that maybe we tend to like big grand narratives that have amazing, you know, breakthrough moments. And, don't get me wrong. There about are about the artists about right, and there yeah. are and there are a few of those moments on this list because 
you know, it, it was it was such a formative time for these artists, but there is also a lot of, you know, quieter time, which to your point was not particularly quiet because there were lots of, you know, funny and and not um, things happening during this period, you know, for the artists as well. But but yeah, I, I just I think it's just a different it's a different way of kind of thinking about minor histories that can add up to something that that feels a little bit more um, real around, you know, a, a creative spirit or, or even just a way of, you know, thinking about a moment in time. But it's, you know, I think, you know, we, we have categories and we have isms and things for a reason and that it, it's a, there's a neatness about them. It's a way to summarize things very quickly. And it this sort of maybe unravels that a little bit, messes that up a little bit too, which is, you know, also it takes a little bit more time than to to think about all the different things going on at once and and how can we talk about a moment where you have someone making 13 foot you know woven forms and just next door someone making some of the first pop art to to add an ism in there you know paintings and and what does it mean to kind of have all of that happening all at once um in a way that like certainly i think when you're reading a textbook on art history, it doesn't normally fall on the pages in that well, way. And this is actually what I what I was going to say is that you're talking about this kind of interesting like back and forth between accessibility and inaccessibility. So mm-hmm. art history attempts to make what would be some, you know, because we're talking about pretty inaccessible art here to the outside public. We're talking about Ellsworth Kelly and... Uh, you know, Andy Warhol filming Robert Indiana eating a mushroom, which, you know, it's very easy, as I just did, to say, why is that art? Um, (laughs) You know, and Agnes Martin's, you know, very kind of compulsive lines. And, you know, these are not artworks that just reveal themselves to the average person without really understanding what these artists were attempting to do and how they were using their canvases and how they were, you know, referencing things that if it were explained would be like, oh, okay, I kind of get it. You know, the, like your beautiful description of the mushroom film, you know, it's like with that kind, with an art historian leading you by the hand, Mm -hmm. you know, it puts these objects in a kind of uh, framework that does make them a little bit more accessible. And yet, Art history is the very thing that has made these artists feel untouchable. Mm. And these artists are the ones who are so deeply human, so deeply accessible. And that's, you know, that's why your book is such a pleasure. But it is interesting to attempt to reconcile what it means for somebody to look at the work that was being created in you know, in New York in the middle of the 20th century and think, okay, I understand where these people are coming from and I understand how they can speak to me. Mm, Although maybe they were just largely speaking to each other and that's okay too. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I do think, I mean, I said that one of the joys of this book, researching this book was being able to, you know, get outside of art history in a way, but they're also, you know, there there are really wonderful and art historians who are who are thinking about, you know, how to tell 
these stories of art in a way that to really, you know, engage and interest people. And, and I think, you know, that's always a gift when you come upon um, those works. And, and a lot of, you know, a lot of that I brought into my, you know, into my book. And there's a lot in the bibliography for, um, for the book. There's a lot of really great art historical tracks around these artists too. So there is a lot out there, but I also do think that it helps to, you know, to stop and to think about, you know, if there are different ways that we can reframe some of, of the way we look at, you know, how we group certain artists together or don't, or who we exclude, or Mm -hmm. if an artist hasn't kind of made it and we, then they're not going to, there'll always be a footnote because there's not room in the, you know, in the, in the art historical canon to talk about this artist and, and just all the, all the different kind of the practices that I think it is important to maybe stop and, and rethink a little bit um, along the way. Mm-hmm. But for me and my, you know, art historical training, the, the teachers, the professors that I remember most and the books that have been most important to me are the ones that have really had some kind of compelling story and motivation behind, you know, why the artist was doing what they were doing. And I think that really does help us to, to get, you know, to your point, to kind of to understand something a little bit more when at face value, we might not, you know, immediately find meaning in it. But, you know, it, it's, it's an entryway in. And I think for me, that is what I am always looking to do. I'm always wanting to extend a kind of a handout or a bridge out to someone to, you know, come, come look at this thing with me. It's so amazing. And I don't, why, I'm not sure why I think it's amazing. Can you come, you know, come with me on this journey as we both figure this out? And, and I think, you know, I, maybe that sounds a little bit cheesy, but that's why I've always loved art. And that's, you know, what has always been a kind of mission of mine. It's why I think I, you know, I started out in teaching and, you know, was working at different kind of places. And it's why I've, you know, ended up in a public museum because, that is ultimately what I want to do. Yeah. Look, not cheesy at all. I mean, I'm right there with you. And yeah. so, you know, I think that's why people listen to this show. Well, of course, with, with this podcast, that's exactly. No, I mean, that's that's very, it's incredibly related to to the project you're doing with your podcast. And I, and I do think, I think people are receptive to that. I, I hope they are. Um, yeah. yeah. And how, re- how everyone has related to their own moment. Yeah. I feel like there's a sense of community that yes. way. Even if we're not relating to them, we all relate to that. Yeah. We all relate to the fact that we exist in our own moments. Yes. And kind of opening opening ourselves to that. Um, all right. Well, let me just ask one more question. Uh, you mentioned having three kids while writing this book and working full time. And you also mentioned talking about the the letters that Delphine Sayreg wrote to her own mother when she was talking about the the challenge between being a mother and and having a career and i was wondering you know did you take anything away in terms of the way that she described creativity during that time like how she kept both alive in her yeah i mean i really i really related to those letters a lot i um I was really moved by them. And I think especially just that tension of, you know, being a new mom and all the time that it takes to just kind of be with your child and not much else happening, but also, you know, wanting to have this career and knowing that she wanted to kind of be moving forward with things. So I, I really related a lot to that. And 
And I think, you know, for, for a lot of it, it was just about kind of patience <laughs> and this will come, this will happen. Um, and you can, you know, you, you can figure out a way to do both things. It's never, you know, I was just talking with someone else about this. It's not really, you know, to say it's a balancing act is wrong because it's never a balance. It's, it's about, never balanced. It's never balanced, but it's about yeah. sort of just continuing to get up and, and move forward. And I think I, I saw that in kind of how she was relating her life, you know, back back to her mother and, yeah, and just the kind of way that, the, the way you, I sort of ha- had to ha- make it happen um, in terms of the book getting written in the midst of, of everything else going on. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, well, I never thought I would have anything in common with a French Lebanese actress in the middle of the 20th century. But look, my, my kid is in his crib and I, I hope he's sleeping right now, but if he's not, I'm still here. See, this is exactly, this is such a perfect, perfect example of, of what we do. <laughs> getting it done, getting it done. <laughs> yeah. And, and appreciating that everyone in their own context has gotten it done. Um, you know, whether it's making art or making kids or both simultaneously. Yeah. Um, but that, that expanding that notion of context and place and human relationship, I, I feel like it just, it only makes art and especially art history closer, you know, closer yes. at hand, closer to reach out and touch. Yeah. And I really appreciate that art historians like you are, are trying to rewrite art history a little bit, you know, maybe rewrites too strong a word, but like nudge art history to a place that feels genuinely inclusive. I, I really appreciate that. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thank you for being um, such a lovely reader of the book. Too. <laughs> it's always appreciated. Um, thank you so much for dropping by. It is really my pleasure. Woke up this morning something was Prudence Pfeiffer's The Slip, the New York City street that changed American art forever, which, since our conversation, has been long-listed for the National Book Award, is available wherever smart, beautifully written, genre-bending art history books are sold. And if you want more content like this, more interviews, more episodes, more readings, there's only one way to support the show. Become a patron at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. For as little as $2 an episode, you are literally helping this show exist. And then you should also head over to thelonelypalette.com for a free newsletter of Art World Roundups, information about commissioning episodes and booking Zoom art museum tours and merch, and, of course, an archive of over 70-plus episodes and interviews. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>